0: is a mixed group so I'm going to provide some brief notes uh, just to talk about some of the amazing things that they have done in their careers thus far. So Jr. is an artist who exhibits freely in the streets of the world catching the attention of people who are not typical museum visitors. After finding a camera in the Paris Metro in 2001, Jr. has traveled worldwide to create some of the most iconic art projects of the last decade. In 2006, he created Portrait of a Generation. These were images of suburban men and women that he posted in huge formats in the bourgeois districts of Paris. In 2007, with Marco, he made Face to Face, which has been called the biggest legal exhibition ever, and it consisted of huge portraits of Israelis and Palestinians face to face and eight Palestinian and Israeli cities. In 2011, JR received the TED Prize, after which he created Inside Out, an international participatory art project that allows people worldwide to get their picture taken and pasted to support an idea and share their experience. In 2016, JR was invited by the Louvre and made the famous uh, pyramid disappear through a surprising anamorphosis. In that same year, he worked with Rio during the 2016 Olympics and created new gigantic sculptural installations above the city using scaffolding that featured athletes and highlighted the beauty of athletic movement. Just this past year, JR co-directed Faces Places, a film with Agnes Varda, And this featured the two of them traveling around France to meet people and discuss their visions. The film, as you may have known, was nominated for for an Oscar for Best Documentary. Jeffrey Deitch has been involved with modern and contemporary art for nearly 50 years, and has had one of the most dynamic careers in the art world as an artist, writer, curator, dealer, and advisor. He started working in galleries in 1974 at the John Weber Gallery, working with some of the leading artists of the era, such as Saul LeWitt, Carl Andre, Dan Flavin, Robert Ryman, and Hans Hocken. In 1976, he surprised his art world friends by enrolling at Harvard Business School, which led led to him eventually developing and co-managing Citibank's Art Advisory Service. The first professional art advisory service of its type and the first department in a major bank to specialize in art finance. In 1988, after nine years at Citibank, he opened his own art advisory firm, and he continues to advise some of the world's most active collectors of modern and contemporary art. Deitch has written numerous articles, monographs, and catalog essays on artists spanning from Fernand Leger to Keith Herring, Jean-Michel Basquiat, and Jeff Koons, and in the 1970s and early 1980s, he was a regular contributor to arts and art in America. He's been especially engaged with artists who have emerged from street and graffiti culture, and has been a primary critical and commercial voice for Basquiat, Herring, and Coons. Deitch Projects, the New York gallery he operated from 1996 to 2010, presented more than 250 projects by artists from 33 countries, and its history has recently been documented in Live the Art, 15 Years of Deitch Projects, that was published by Rizzoli in 2014. In 2010, Deitch closed the gallery to become director of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. During his three years at MOCA, he presented 50 exhibitions and projects, including The Painting Factory and Art in the Streets, which had the uh, highest attendance in the museum's history. Deitch has re-established his art advisory service and exhibition program in New York at present, and will be opening a Los Angeles gallery in September of this year. So we are here today to discuss JR's installation So Close, but also to expand on and discuss JR's work in general, Jeffrey Deitch's involvement with it, and Deitch's reflections on decades of work with quote-unquote art in the streets. After that, we'll have a chance to open it up to some questions, as I'm sure there will be some, and if you're using social media, uh, we're using the hashtag So Close So, I'm going to move to the JRs. Hello? Yes. Okay, hi Jared. Hey, hi Jeffrey. Um, So, Jared, can you talk to us a little bit about what So Close is and uh, describe it in a little bit of detail? What it is, both image wise and structurally, and the origin of this work? Yeah, um, hi everybody. Uh, It's a great pleasure to be here. It's a great pleasure to work with you,
1: Jeffrey. tell you where so close come from actually a friend of mine gave me a book uh, must have been six years ago from Stephen Witkins who is actually in this room today and he is uh, right there and uh, uh, an amazing book actually where you would see the complete abandoned side of Elis the side that have never been open to the public and I remember seeing this book and be like wow what a you know what a fascinating place and that shows a lot of how i work i don't necessarily wait for invitation when i got this book and i saw this walk i contacted the center and i said how can i get there and uh, and i said oh no it's closed you cannot get there uh, i still got a meeting and uh, at that meeting you know we actually said explain you know ideally we would get archive photos you know i was happy to do it and paid on my own or, just, you know, living in New York, it could just come easily and do the project. And it took five years to get the authorization <laughs> to actually paste in the abandoned site of the asylum. That's one image. Um, this one's another. Because in that whole section, there is still all the furniture. It actually is exactly intact like it had been left since they closed the Island. So you really feel the presence of the millions of people who have come through there and all the people who actually didn't make it because you would get to that section of the island uh, when you were sick or uh, they didn't know, you know, um, if you needed to be put in quarantine and you would be put there and you would be so close from your goal because, you know, right there is the Statue of Liberty and, you know, um, you would arrive on the boat, those pastings are still on the island actually, it's tools that you can do, it's called the hard, hard Tours. Uh, and you have, you you, you book online and they put two guards with you and it's a group of eight people and you can walk to those ruins. But you would be so close from the city and yet so far, a lot of people had to go back. So that's how, you know, I had to work on Ellis Island for years and it's been fascinating because um, I shot a small film uh, that we gave for free and shared with everyone uh, we've done many projects, uh, talking also about current migrants. This, is, this was for the film, so this was inside, it was a you know, temporary installation, so it had to go. But last year, um, I got invited to exhibit for the first time outside of Elisabeth. And you know, really the team there is amazing. Uh, uh, they've never let any artists do any work on that side, so I felt really privileged. We opened it to the people. And when I got invited, of course, to paste on the outside, I wanted to paste photos of current migrants, because I felt like I pasted the photos in the archive of Ellis Island. And you know I wanted to talk about the people of today, the people who are trying to make it here and, uh, and, and who can't anymore. And so I proposed an image with some eyes that would be on the outside, so that you know, people who pass on boat, it's millions of people who go to the Statue of Liberty, who goes to Staten Island, who would see it. And it got refused. Uh, so I was like, wow, you know, I mean, it's just eyes. What's the difference? Let me show you a crop of an eye from 1900 and a crop of an eye from today. It's the same, you know. And so they said, no, we can only do the archive photo because this is governmental. So I said, okay, let me see. I flew to the border of Syria with the photo, a famous photo from the archive that's actually in public domain, and, uh, which is a group of seven or eight migrants, you know, uh, lined up to, uh, you know, enter uh, to a dissident uh, United States of America. And so I entered through Jordania, the border of Syria, and got to the camp. And I entered the camp and I, I said, can I meet anybody who looks like those people? Does anyone like look like this guy or look like this woman? And by the way people say, Oh, that's, that's funny, that, that guy actually there's a guy who sells chicken all the other way at the camp. He actually looks like that and that woman could be my aunt. And then they took me and then like we spent a couple of days like finding people and when I would find them and I would explain them and I would say, Do you mind if I take your photo? But you have to pose exactly in the same shape as that person was, you know, posing. And so people say, Of oh, course, but what do you want to do with it? They say, Look I want to replace your face by their face, and I want to see if if I show them that photo, they they'll see any difference. So the people would say, "Of course, if that helps, uh, we do." So I photographed those eight people and replaced the faces, which is something I never do. You have to know something about my work. There have never been any Photoshop in the history of my work. If not, if I start doing it, you would doubt any image you would see. But I thought one thing, it needed to be done, and second, I've never lied on an image. I don't like you know, uh, yes I do stuff illegally, but I don't try to create polymers. You know? <laughs> so yeah, you catch me in the street, I'm not gonna say, I didn't do it, I don't know, I've seen the people. Uh, yeah, I've done it. Um, so anyway, I came back, sent the photo to Ellis Island, and said, okay, that's what I wanna paste. And they said, oh, amazing, yes, sure. Uh, we'll put it on the outside. Like, okay, I can only do it next week. So they said, cool. Went there, put the scaffolding with the team, we started pasting. And we uh, and started mm-hmm. the walk, and, um, and everyone was like, great, amazing. it's amazing!" you know, you couldn't be more close than that. We were all there looking at, and no one saw the difference. The people who know the best image haven't seen the difference. Mm-hmm. I haven't announced it anywhere. It was <laughs> last year. Mm-hmm. It stayed there for six months. Millions of people passing from. Mm-hmm. That's it. I didn't try to make any like, "Wow, made it. We pasted it." it that it was there and it disappeared. And it's only last week that we revealed it on 60 Minutes. Uh, now that it's all gone and that the you know the rain has washed it away, and that we installed it you know in front of the Amory, so this is the actual image, and that's why we wanted to present it here. That's why also the title of the show is called So Close.
0: So is this the actual image that was on Ellis Island, or slightly different? No, it's the actual exact image. Yeah. Okay, so you're just transplanting that image here. And so were there any issues? Like I mean, the way that this is Present is, is on scaffolding, and that's something that's new for you, relatively. Yeah. I, 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 I have to admit, I stole that
1: idea to the North Korean. Because I went to North Korea, and uh, four years ago, and uh, that's the, the advantage of being anonymous is you can take off your hat and glasses and travel on different passports and then if they don't look at your police records you're just you know <laughs> nobody so i said i was working in a marketing agency in switzerland <laughs> and i was you know in charge of promotions and 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 then first they refused it but i was like oh, i cannot get better than that i don't know what. Else. so i reapplied and it got approved so of course i you know that's the kind of places where you know, I realized that that's where the limit is. You know, a lot of places I would tell you, it's not where you think it is, the limit is much further. When I went there, I thought okay, that's where the limit is. I, 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 I actually pasted something the size of the top of my finger, and I'm really proud of that, but it might be my smallest pasting, but at least it is in North Korea. <laughs> but on my way back, I saw the main square, this giant, you know, really like propaganda image on scaffolding um, of a cutout, so it's, like billboard, but it's not advertising anything except you know the dictator. And so uh, I was like, wow, that's pretty powerful. And I started doing those uh, sculpture installation like you mentioned in Brazil and uh, in different parts. And so I, that's why I wanted to present it this way to you know you know uh, not paste them on the building, but like play with the architecture. And and you know sometimes I can have like the one in Brazil, someone jump over a building.
0: And suddenly that becomes possible. Right. Um, Jeffrey, can you talk a little bit about your involvement in this project and then also just how you got to
2: work with JR? Well, first, it's such a privilege to work with JR. JR is the kind of artist I admire the most because JR makes art for the world, it doesn't make art just for art fairs. No, we're here, and this is an important audience too. But it's really art for everybody. and. Also, Jr. is one of the few artists who with great integrity can make art that takes on the important issues of today without being overly hectoring and continuing vanguard art tradition. Also, as you can see, J.R. is a great communicator and you know, very special. There's the rare artist who, in his personality, attitude embodies the work and can push the work even beyond with his ability to articulate it. So we've known each other for a long time. It's wonderful you told me you your first trip to New York You came to my gallery. I didn't mention I just dropped a book on his
1: on, you know, on, his, on his table hoping one day he'll see it. When was that? Yeah.
2: Uh, first time I came was 2004. And so we were able to work together, do a terrific project at the Art in the Streets show at the Museum of Contemporary Art in LA. JR pasted faces across the entire facade of the museum. It was a fantastic piece. And we did other things as well. And we've, we've done some public commissions for buildings in New York City. Uh, we never did a big project like this, and when Armory Show asked me, "Do you have an idea about something special that can engage the public, could be outdoors, indoors?" Jr. was the one.
0: Thank you, Jeffrey. Okay. Hey, Jeffrey, you've worked with some, you know, some of the most amazing kind of street, urban graffiti artists of the era, and I'm just wondering if you could
2: talk a little bit about how you see Jr. in the context of others you've worked with. So something very interesting about street art that the original originators of Wild Style, and my hero Lee Canonis, is right here in the front right. <laughs> 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 um, their, 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 their innovations were so strong and profound, it was very hard for many years for artists working the public in this way to do something new. And so you see all over the world artists working in the style that Lee initiated in New York City in the late 70s. Uh, so I thought for a while, graffiti art got a little stale, repetitive, and so I was looking for people who were working in the street, uncommissioned public art, people who don't ask permission to just do it on their own, but doing it in a way that was fresh. And JR is one of the people I came across who reinvented how to create this kind of public art. And in addition, there's another very important innovation. Uh, I think that JR is one of the artists extending how you can use the medium of photography. And uh, I I think extending it in a more interesting way than any other person using photography today. And maybe that's a good
0: uh, good moment to kind of talk about Faces Places if anyone has not seen that movie, you should. I think it's now out on iTunes as of this week. Um, but I was really struck in that film about how, exactly what Jeffrey's talking about, how it really illustrates the, the various different ways in which you use the photograph first Going from photographs that you've taken to photographs that you set up that people, you know, kind of collaborate with you on them, and then you have your, your truck that drives around the countryside, uh, sort of photograph a, a camera on wheels. up um. <laughs> uh, right there. So, uh, can you just tell people a little bit about the movie, kind of a little teaser, so they'll go see it, which I think everyone
1: should. Um, So, I met Agnes Vala, who's right there with the funny haircut, uh, which I encourage everybody to do, because it's pretty simple to do, but also it changes, you know, how people see you, and they they can tell there's some fun in you, you know, when you have such a haircut. So, Agnes is definitely someone that now has to embody that, and so we actually never met uh, and I knew her work in French, she's kind of, kind of a master of cinema, and also in the US, but you know, I realized a lot of my generation didn't knew her. And, um, and I knew her, I've seen her films, but I've never met, we've never been in the same room. And one day just an email came and her daughter said, oh, would you like to meet my mom? And I was like, wow, actually, yeah, I'll come. So I, I went there the next day, it was a Monday. You know, she prepared some little cookies and pastramis and like some, you know, stuff that, you know, grandma does at home and, and showed me her photos. And I, I had my phone only with me. I wanted to take a photo. I took one. And then she said, oh, you can do better. I was like, know, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I was like, oh, why don't you, why don't you come to my studio? And she's like, OK, sure. You know, friend, I'm, I don't know I'm here now, so come tomorrow. Okay. Then she came the next day. And I remember she came and my studio is always, you know, with the team and friends are coming by always hectic, and she just chilled there the whole day and talked to everyone, and um, that day, was it was funny, the, was the, the, the rapper, Yasin Bey was there, and you know, he can be really like intense, and she actually like, boom, backpicked him and started talking to him, and I look at those two, and I said, wow, she's in, you know, she's like, camouflage, she can be in any, like talk to anybody, anytime, and, 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 and I'll turn to um, their perspective you know and I mean it was fascinating to see so the next day I went back to her house and we you know we kind of felt both that we had friendship at first sight. really so we were like we should do something but she didn't want to do any more movie in her life she actually never co-directed or co-written in her life and I was not planning to make any movie so we just said why don't we do you know an art film like a one minute piece a two minute film or five minutes and that's how we started. We actually raised money online and went on the road. And we took, you know, my photo truck that amazed her because, it, you know, it prints the photo right away. And we drove through France, and you know, that's one of the first things we did, like stop in a village and had no idea and say, oh, you know, we had bread, so why don't we do a picture with the whole village, you know, eating the baguette? You know, that's when you put French people in a village with no idea that what come out. You
0: know?
1: <laughs> like, that's exactly what it, uh, and then we went to factories and, uh, uh, you know, involved everybody there. But it was interesting cause because we were so naive and in the whole context of the factory, for example, a lot of people told us after, they said, you know, we don't like this group of the people. We don't like this guy or this is, we all have different sections. And, but because we just wanted to involve everyone, we actually overpassed that. And the people for the art project also overpassed that, overpassed that difference. And we realized that actually I was going often in a place in Normandy where I saw that bunker. And it's funny because normally when I see a place that I really want to paste on, I just do it the next week. But this one for 10 years and had half really, um, you know, I didn't know what to do on it. I was really impressed by that bunker that fell from the cliff. I was trying to get her there, but she's like, I don't care about your bunker. <laughs> <laughs> she's really tough, she's really tough. And I can speak freely today because she's not next to me. If not, she would have stopped me already and I would not be saying a word. I'm going to enjoy that freedom right now. And, um, and then, uh, you know, one day I was there again, and she's like, you know, what are you doing there? And I tell her the name of the village, and she's like, wow, I know that place. I, I came there in the 50s with Guy Bourdin, famous photographer, that's here on the photo. Uh, and uh, on that exact same beach. And she'd say, I even went there with my mother when I was seven years old in 1938. So before actually the bunker was built. And so then she came back in 1951 and did those photos. And so, you know, that's another story that we we crossed past. So anyway, the the film is a journey through encounters of people all around France. And, and you know, and at the same time, she's losing her eyesight. So I'm trying to help her see as much as possible before it all disappears.
0: So you know, we had an incredible journey. It's an incredible, yeah. And that that wasn't in the film. So you exactly. Yeah. I'm giving like teasers so people don't believe. We'll talk about it. Um, I'd love you both to talk a little bit about funding for your projects. You know, both of you work with uh, not so normal. I mean, it's not to say that no one else does what you do, but um, not so normal funding uh, strategies. I don't know if you could talk a little bit about your strategy, and Jeffrey, you could talk a little bit about just how your projects have been funded and just how street art, kind of, you know, doing really path breaking kind of installation work out in the world does pose a challenge for support. I mean, so someone's going to pass with a
1: hat, and, uh, you know, everybody can give it a nation. That's <laughs> I mean, how we no, so from the really beginning, because my work implicates people, um, I never wanted to have any corporate sponsors. So there's no brand, there's no sponsors, uh, uh, you know, there's no institution behind it that pays for it. And it was a rule that I set up from the really beginning, because when I went and did one of the early projects in the Middle East, I couldn't paste on the wall between Israel and Palestine, or in the cities there, you know, powered by Coca-Cola. Because on one side they'll be like, you know, we don't like Coca-Cola and on the other side, if I've done it with Meca-Cola, which is, uh, you know, another brand, they'll be like, we don't like that. So it would actually link me with some political ideas that I don't even care. So depending on where the money comes from, it would be a nightmare. So from the okay. beginning, actually, and also because maybe they didn't want to sponsor me also, <laughs> but I didn't even try. It was, you know, easier to not ask any permission and to just self-fund it. So because I don't come from money, I, the, the, you know, I was doing small jobs on the side, non-photography jobs because I never studied photography, so I'm not that good. But like, you know, I could unload a truck, I could do other stuff that I would use the money for. And so that's how I really started at the beginning. And it's just black and white photography, you know. So it was it was pretty small. But then, really quickly, I understood that uh, it would be only through the sales of my work that um, that I could finance the project. But you have to understand that 99% of what I do is actually non for sale in the street. Anyone can take photo, anyone can reproduce it the way they want as long as it's not commercial. We don't sue anybody. The only people we sue actually is the brands who use my artworks as a background in advertising. <laughs> And I can tell you that we actually <laughs> won a lot of cases like that. So sometimes I feel even conflicted about it because I'm suing people that have used on the back of a Volkswagen advertising a pasting that I haven't had permission to put. And yet, you know, uh, like one time they won and they actually changed the face on post production. And there was nothing I could do. Anyway, so the way I have financed the war from the beginning was through setting, you know, 1% of my time goes to creating artworks uh, or documentation of the work that is ephemeral and our installation, like uh, there was one I'm going to go back with your eyes, you've seen this, you forgot this and then maybe you remember that this and that's the one I want to show before that one, this one. So that's for example a museum piece of 700 trains turning in circle right. and it's a in museum in, the, in, in, in France and all those trains connect and create faces Uh, So there's a smaller installation of that that's actually on the booth here Uh, Mm -hmm. And those works are glass works so that you know depending on how you put the light it reflects the entire image also on the wall So works that I always presented in gallery, works that I couldn't do in the street, or videos, or that's how I got into film really early um, Or the documentation of the process, uh, a bit like Christo does, you know, like the sketches and I always mainly done unique piece, you know, or edition of three to the max, but I've really produced really rarely. I've done only two shows in my life in France, uh, two shows in the UK, and uh, and you know, this is the first time I present a, a major set of work in, the, in in New York. So it's it's been, uh, I've basically yeah. sell enough to finance my work, but I, I've never like, you know, my first gallery was in yeah. London, was Banksy and Lazarides who signed me one of and they were at the time, you know, playing the market and the incredible uh, things, which was amazing to be, because right away, you know, I didn't know about the art world. I didn't know about, you know, I've never studied art, so I didn't know that there was all this world around. And and then the next day, your nurse was buying a piece of mine and stuff, and so it was incredible. But at the same time, I was like, wow, I'd rather take my time because I can't, you know, burn that cow twice. That's that's how I want to finance my work for the rest of my life. I don't want to. Flip on in 20 years and say, okay, finally I've done this with, you know, um, you know L'Oréal because you know they do great stuff, you know they do great hair and whatever, and then I'll be there talking to you about L'Oréal. Who cares, you know? And they came to me many times through their foundations, through their, and I told them I said, look, those people didn't participate in the project to even, you know, like talk about L'Oréal foundation or whatever foundation. So I've been always really careful about that, and uh, and. Amazingly, people don't know but when they buy artworks that's where the money goes, but um, a lot of people became shadow philanthropists. Can you believe that in New York, I don't pay rent for my studio? Because someone is like, well, if you're gonna send posters for free around the world to people, can I please help you put your printer in a place that you won't pay rent? And it's been seven years. And you meet sometimes people like that who's not doing it for the credit they get out of it, but for the purpose of the actual project. And I call those people shadow philanthropists, and I can tell you that I've met people like that. They exist, they're really rare, but they are the people that to me really change the world because they do it for the purpose of the
0: project. Jeffrey, can you talk a little